0: Production of the Toll Network. This is the Uncommon Cast RX number two thirty one, Robot Lucy Lou. I'm Alif.
1: And I'm Sono, and this is Common Rider Zero One, episode five, His Passionate Path of Manga, and episode six, I Want to Hear Your Voice. Our writer for both of these episodes was Kakehi Masaya. Our director for both was Shibasaki Takeyuki. Um, Kakehi Masaya is a new name, all around. Uh, and he's an interesting figure in <laughs> having looked him up. He's new to tokusatsu, but has written for a handful of TV and film going back to 1996. Uh, His breakout seemed to be in 2006 when an independent film that he wrote and directed uh, won some awards at an independent film festival in Japan, but that's not the interesting part. Okay. I was able to track him back to his agency, um, and in his little bio on his page on the agency's website, he is also described aside from his film and TV work as being a mangaka, which I was able to corroborate with a few other websites. And his agency specifically noted one of his titles that won an honorable mention for a manga prize, which is Perfuman, which is the title of the (gasps) manga and anime that is featured in episodes 5 and 6.
0: Amazing. I haven't been able to
1: actually find his Perfuman manga to confirm that these two episodes are just using his art, but I can't imagine that's a coincidence and wow, what a power move. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it would also really explain how they have so much art for this one series to be using in these two episodes. Because they have a lot. There's yeah, there's no, all true. of the individual, like, character art. There's all this art that's on, like, shirts. There's several different manga pages that we see. Mm. And I have to imagine it was probably a lot faster and cheaper to toss a little licensing money at this guy than have all of this outwardly commissioned. And maybe they were just trying to license this manga, and he was like, hey, can I write those episodes? And they're like, sure.
0: I mean, with what we know of uh, Takahashi Yuya, uh, it seems pretty reasonable, because, like, it's not that we really know a ton, but he does have the the feel of an auteur. He did go the full Kobayashi, as I recall, back in X-Aid. So I feel if he's going to let someone else do some writing. It's going to be someone he he can get behind. Yeah. Someone who would do things like, look, you're you're going to do an episode about a mangaka anyway, right? So let me write it and give me some money so you can license my uh my characters. Let's do that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I mean, not only is it faster and cheaper, he is providing a really interesting perspective on this story. Mm.
0: Cuz he'd been there. Yeah. he had done that.
1: So and then there's Shibasaki Takeyuki, who we have talked about a dozen times, because uh, he's directed on Kamen Rider every year since Kabuto, with the exception of Kiva and Ex-Aid. He's directed on a bunch of Sentai, starting with Go Busters, uh, with the exception of Nininja and Tokyujur. So, you know, he's a name we've mentioned good handful Once of times. Once or twice, yeah. But Pakehi's a very interesting figure.
0: Clearly. And it's, it's definitely a name we're going to be keeping an eye out for, because, I mean, these were couple good episodes and I really hope uh, Kakihi comes back.
1: Yeah, I mean it's I know he's written for other things that are on TV Asahi, so it's very oh. possible that, you know, they they directed the Toei crew towards him when Toei was like, "Hey, we're going to do this mangaka episode, we need some art." And then it, it I guess wound up having him write the episode. I I don't know the circumstances, but he's just a very interesting figure.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it was fun- these are a fun couple episodes, so I'm- I'm here for whatever's going on. But, since we're talking about the fun, let's just- let's get in, get our nitpicks and problems out of the way so that we can get to the fun.
1: Okay, so the minute the mangaka, uh, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, uh, calls his Yuma gear G-Pen- I kind of knew what we were in for with this episode, and it stung a bit. Um, A G-pen is a specific type of pen nib that is commonly used by mangaka and cartoonists worldwide. I've used dozens of them in my lifetime. They can produce a very varied line. You can get both a really thin line and a really thick line with them. Okay. Uh, So they're very versatile, so they're, they're good to use for a lot of different things. So when he calls his assistant that, and you see that his assistant has the drawing gloves on, I'm like, oh, this dude names his assistants after the tools that he's having them use.
0: Yeah, which, oof, like Like, we, we're gonna get in-
1: We see a dude doing digital coloring later, and I'm like, oh, that dude's name is- That dude's name is either Photoshop or Clip Studio.
0: Yep, which, oof. And, and like, look, I, I at least appreciate that him just calling them- by the tool names he's having them use, definitely inspires his Magir form, (laughs) which I have to say I do kind of love.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess technically this is not actually a bad thing because it's actually very, very good show-don't-tell storytelling to make it clear with very little to no explanation how this guy feels about his Yuma gear. Like, all he had to do was call that guy G-Pen, and I'm like, oh, no, I understand what your deal is. Uh, it was just yeah, a very I, quick gut punch within the first, like, minute of the episode.
0: Yeah, no. I, like, I didn't know that's what G-Pen was. So hearing, like, I, I caught that, oh, that's not a very, like, namey name, is it? And he's treating them like tools. That's really bad. But finding out that he named him Tool is just, hey, what's up, Pen Nib? Go. Yeah,
1: like, he essentially, um, he essentially named this dude Sharpie.
0: Yeah. But, like, I... I will say, it, it just made me hope that there would be an episode where, like, the the drill Magir was attacking the guy and Aruto would just be like, I mean, I know I should stop this, but... Because, uh... I mean, that dude that dude sucked real bad during that part of the, the thing.
1: Um, so this is more of a subbing issue on the part of Rider Time. I'm not really sure how Overtime subbed it, because I've stopped watching them, uh, for Zero One, just because I feel like Rider Time, uh, is subbing things more clearly, except in this one specific instance. Um, cause as Aru, Aruto and Izu are wheeling the Yuma Gear box down the road, it's subbed as Aruto saying he brought signature forms, which sounds like he's talking about paperwork regarding handing over the Yuma Gear. Mm. Um, but what he actually says he's bringing- is shikishi, which are a specific kind of cardstock board that are used for autographs, which indicates very clearly that, you know, Aruto is excited to meet the person that they're going to see. He's This is some kind of idol of his. And I mean, the next couple of lines also clarify that, But the line felt very out of place until I went back to listen to what he was actually saying, because I'm like, why are you excited about having the forms to sign this off?
0: Yeah, of course you have signature forms. You are, you know, you have to sign the receipt, get forms in triplicate, because this is a very high-end piece of machinery.
1: Yeah, it's... I've I've heard them called autograph boards, and I feel like for the sake of clarity, that would have been the better term to use. Mm. Uh, because they're like form. I think is the word that really threw me off. Like even if he had said signature board, I think I would have understood it. But autograph board is probably the most clear way to have subtitled that. And I know it's nitpicky as heck, and I have nothing but love for writer time and what they're doing. It's just the line.
0: This isn't isn't about insults. The line
1: really bugged me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fair. I I never would have caught that myself. So, like, you know, good catch. I, I don't- I think it's fun catch, but I don't know, maybe it's not fun. Anyway, moving on.
1: Yeah, um, a bit that also bothered me, um, and this is more back on, I guess, the directing or maybe the writing, is when the mangaka, uh, Choichiro, says he's- he, like, leans back in his seat and he's like, I've lost my passion for manga, and then immediately, G-Pen Magir busts through the window and he like jumps away from his desk, but then is like, oh, but I need this pen, and runs back to his desk. And I think, I think it's supposed to because it's a really old kind of like ratty pen. So I think we're supposed to infer that it's like the one that he used when he started drawing perfume men or started drawing manga in general. But the way that unfolded felt very ham-fisted to me. I wish instead that when he had jumped back, he had grabbed the pen instinctually and then found himself surprised to be holding it, I think that would have been a much more elegant narrative way of showing that he still has his passion for manga, because he still instinctively grabbed this tool that's so important to him, which ironically was a G-pen. It, okay, had, it had a yeah. G-pen, yeah. I believe it had a G-pen nib inside of it, because they all look a little bit different, and it that looked like a G-pen. But, you know, he still had all this passion but he had just lost sight of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you're you're very right when you said ham-fisted, because I, look, I like the episode, don't get me wrong, that is a good word for episode five. Because while I I enjoy when things are that kind of completely unsubtle, especially in a superhero genre show, because superheroes are not meant for subtlety. It's just, it's not in the makeup of the genre. But at the same time, you are hitting the nail on the head when you say it's not exactly elegant either. Because there's a lot to be said for In Your Face, but the episode's sort of like dancing back and forth between In Your Face and more subtle or elegant storytelling. So because it's trying to be so middle of the line, every time it goes to one extreme or the other, it it does kind of jump out and just writer kick you in the face.
1: Okay, so rolling into six, I know Fua is there because he suspects that Sane was made to look like Tizawa's daughter, but no one is, like, concerned that he's there. No one asked, like, hey, I know you're, like, the robot cops, but what are you here for? Like, he at least waited until the audition was over to confront them and didn't mess up the actual recording. But, like, this is a professional setting, and suddenly, like, Ames is just there doesn't he need like some kind of notification of reason
0: you'd think so like I, I i'm i was guessing this is supposed to be like part of how he's a cop on the edge and i'm not a fun i'm not fan of that uh that part of his character but like i i was watching him just like wait is are we about to learn about some robot labor laws she's violating and I'll get into that later, but, like, hey, she's doing the work of, like, multiple voice actors. Is is that against robot law? I mean,
1: it's- Aruto and Izu knew he was gonna be there, because Izu's like, hey, our job today is to, like, keep an eye on him.
0: Yeah, that- yeah, that's So, true.
1: like, there was- he gave some kind of notification to someone that he was gonna be there, and security, like, didn't remove him. So he's clearly authorized, but no one knew why he was there, which feels really weird. Like did yeah. did the the anime producers know why he was there and are just like, "Okay, buddy, you can hang out here and do what you're going to do when you're going to do it, just don't mess up our show." Like I don't know, something just feels very weird structurally in the fact that he was just hanging out ...in the studio booth, and no one's like, hey, uh, Fuwa, what are you doing?
0: Yeah. Or, or even just, honestly, just like, okay, look, if, if you have AIM's business, just wait outside. No, but I want to make sure that she doesn't turn into a Magir. Like, even that much would be something. But, yeah, no, it's weird.
1: So the biggest problem with these two episodes... And probably the biggest problem with the first six episodes in general is I really wish they'd stop with Jin and the gun. Like, it's bad enough in five when, like, he's pointing it at Arto, but I got six is really where, like, the worst of it is. When he shows up at this crowded stage, like, there's a full crowd, there's, like, seven or eight people on the wings of the stage, and he just fires that gun into the air three times. Like, I kind of lost it a little bit. Like, that's really not okay. Just, like, wildly super not okay. And I'm really upset that it happened, and I really wish they would not. Because, again, I know the gun culture in Japan is different. This is kind of how you start ending up with the gun culture that the U.S. has. Yeah. it's Like, it's not the only factor, and I know they have a lot of gun control laws in place already, still well, I mean, you're gonna like that's... get kids who are gonna think he's cool and think that's cool and you don't want that
0: no no I mean cause that's, that's the thing regardless of the laws you have if you create a culture where they sort of shrug at the laws or find weird reasons to skirt the laws to do things that aren't exactly illegal but are just kind of jerky and then that builds and builds and and just eventually you get things where people are like taking photos of themselves laying in bed snuggling up to their assault rifle. well they're they're long guns i don't know the gun types and i don't want to be i don't want to have the conversation eventually what are the long you guns get, you... that looks military style and like this dude is cuddling up to them and i I know he's doing it to own the libs or whatever, but that's just a really weird thing to do
1: but I mean eventually, what you get is you get these these kids growing up and going into an office and pulling those gun laws back, yeah, because they don't think that guns are as scary as they are,
0: yeah yeah like you just these, you...
1: these risks are real, and just. Him, even if he's a villain, just him being in this crowded place and firing a real gun.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I'm I'm with you, I'm with you. It is, it is messed.
1: It is the most viscerally upset a tokusatsu has ever made me, and that is saying some things because I did watch season one of Amazon's.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you must ever watch season two. Like, dear listener, please don't misunderstand. It's not that I think season two is bad. It's that Sono specifically must not watch season two.
1: Like, there's there's a bit in season one where a dude just wails on that lady with a pipe, yeah. and it was it was very upsetting. It was very hard to watch. But it's not a thing that like, I don't know. Like,
0: it's not as bad.
1: It's for you. It's just you know, I'd expect that from Amazon's. It's, I didn't expect that to happen, but it's the kind of thing where I'm like, okay, this at least is violence just a that Komayashi suits this Grimdark. show. It's violence that suits this show, where, I don't just give him a, a dumb pew-pew plastic laser gun. He can do the exact same thing, but it will not register the same way even a little.
0: No. But, uh, Moving on from there, I think we get into the good stuff, because there's a lot of it, and y'all just y'all just buckle up. <laughs> We're you're gonna be here a second, because again, a lot of good stuff these episodes.
1: Yeah, this this is in fact gonna be a hot minute because overall we
0: did really enjoy these. So uh, Susana, um, why don't you start us off?
1: Aruto going full Monster Factory while just messing around with the Yuma Gear designer was precious. Because of course he would. Yeah. He is absolutely. a child. And, like, we get that nice bit of foreshadowing where we see uh the voice acting agent also using the website and kind of being like, oh, how neat. Like, I didn't even realize it was him until, like, we see him... Until I, I didn't realize it was him until I rewatched it and had seen episode six where I was really used to his face. I thought it was just like a dude. And they were just like, oh yeah, this is what people do. This is how they do it. But it's actually this really elegant, beautiful foreshadowing that's really a solid tie-in to where these two episodes are going.
0: Hmm. It's it's terribly elegant. Uh, and I hope. Honestly, I also hope that we kinda of keep up with that whole subplot. Like, I wanna watch where it goes with this guy and and his his robot daughter, who's not his daughter because he wouldn't do that, except he just yeah, it's good stuff.
1: Um, so we've now confirmed that the Chevron is a sign of possibly like the first boot of a Yuma Gear system. Because uh, when they bring the new Yuma gear to Choichiro and he turn, they turn it on, he does get that chevron. Uh, so Mamoru and Niguro and our other friends have all been put into entirely new bodies and just had their data restored from the cloud. Um, and again, I'm totally fine with this as a solution. But I wish that it had just been the solution and was not kind of argued against by Aruto when he said it wasn't the same as saving the body they're in now, when Yua was like, oh, but you can just cloud restore them. Like, I mean, at least we haven't addressed at all that we are saving them somehow, but it just, it feels very weird when that was proposed as like, no, but that's not the right choice, or like, that's not the right way to do this, and then it's just what's happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, because there really is that weird friction that I I really hope the series addresses at some point. Like, look, again, I'm I would much rather have the thing where we can keep the huma gears safe to you know within a certain tolerable margin of error for safe. But it, it's the it's the I'll I'll I will lose the you who exists in this moment thing that is really upsetting because like look I, I I really do hope this show goes full- on near automata you know without all the horny costuming because uh, it is a master masterpiece of video game just as art but uh wow it is uh it is horny I wish it wasn't but uh if this show could could touch on some of the same philosophical stuff that'd be nice because Backing them up from a previously saved thing, it's not the same as as the same person. Because they, they're missing a whole day of growth and transformation or however long it was since they last saved. It's just, it's, like you said, it's a weird thing that we talked to, that the show talked about before and it's just sort of like shrugging at now.
1: So the thing I noticed during the opening theme that may be another point towards Shesta having a more sinister role than she seems. And I'm, I'm not yes. sure if we talked about this. I don't think we oh, did. We,
0: we, we brought up that, that Shesta definitely seems like she's gonna go villain at some oh,
1: point. Oh yeah, no, that, I'm just this specific thing, I'm not sure how much we talked about it. But there's that bit in the opening when the Vice President's portrait falls to reveal Aruto's behind it. And he and whoever that other guy that he plots with kind of both panic and dive out of the way in either direction. And mm. Shesta, who was in the center, which is a weird place for the vice president's assistant to be, doesn't Try. so much as flinch as the portrait falls directly behind her to give her a red backdrop before cutting right to the the old satellite with the red eye in the ocean and then Jin and Hirobi.
0: That's, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, the
1: red doesn't outline her perfectly, but it does, you know, give her the red backdrop. And maybe it's nothing, maybe it's just like we need to present them as characters. And it's, haha, this dude has been usurped by Aruto, and this robot lady doesn't react like a human because she's in a position where this dude has not really allowed her to develop a personality the way that Izu is. And the way that all the other Yuma gear we've met have, maybe it's just that. But X-Aid was always very deliberate in what it did and didn't show in its opening. uh, To the point where it was changing very frequently uh, once we hit the first turning point in the show.
0: Oh, you mean Christmas? Yes. Um, (laughs) Jingle bells, jingle bells.
1: Full of fear, constantly. Um, But it's... It just, it feels like it's something, with the juxtaposition well, of the things that it's up against, and the fact that she's in the center and is then framed by the red of this, of the portrait. It feels like something.
0: Well, again, like, like you were saying, given that in these first few episodes, we've had a lot of very ex moments, uh, like the first two episodes— didn't show the opening in lieu of just packing in more story which it makes me think that that you're probably onto something which is look it's not hurt by the fact that I definitely want for Shasta to do the loop and disguise toss and reveal her freaky like common rider supervillain costume underneath despite how improbable it would be that she could hide it because you know it's you would notice the, the armor she's going to be wearing. But uh, whatever, like, even if that doesn't happen, girl is up to something. And even if it's not being a weird plant or part of a counter-faction with goals similar to, but not exactly in line with, Metsu- Metsubo Jinrai, man, she is shady as heck. And and I think I think you are collecting good data to support that thesis.
1: Yeah, it's just, I, I feel it in my bones
0: and i yeah i also feel it and i don't know how much of that is because i want it to be true but you are pointing out a lot of a lot of good moments and and shots to look at and i'm here for it
1: so i know i have my thoughts about jin and they are not changing but it's it's almost cute how much he like admires horobi Cause like the whole reason he wants a progress key is because he saw Hirobi go out and get to be cool and be a common rider, and then you know he sees Arto and Fua getting to like do form changes, and even later in the episode when he sees them, it's like oh man they're so cool, and he just wants to like be cool and be a common rider, and I can I can get down with you know, that hashtag mood, and you know from that we get some information on how Metsubo, Jinrai are picking their targets. Which are, they're picking Yuma-gear that have become self-aware. Such as, you know, that moment when G-Pen realizes that how he and the other manga assistants are being treated is wrong. Like, the dude throws one on the ground and he stands up, he's ready to fight. Oh, and
0: it's so good. It
1: is, it's such a great moment. And like, he, he knows he's ready to fight, but he's not quite sure what to do. So he just kind of stands there. But, like, I'm not exactly sure how some of these other Yuma gear, like the delivery man and the bus driver, have found self-awareness. Um, like, I could... Because we don't really explore them, and it makes me wish that we had. Like, Mamoru seemed kind of like a crime of opportunity when Jin put the belt on him. Mm. But you could make the argument that... Aruto accepting him as family is what awakened him to self-awareness, and Jin could just sense it because it seems like he and Hirobi can just do that. And that, you know, maybe uh, Muscles Taro seeing people so happy and realizing that's what he wanted to do is make people happy that way, that awakened him to self-awareness. But Ana and Nikiro were both, you know, caught up by Magir turning them into mooks, When you could really easily make arguments for them having also become self-aware, you know, with Nigoro learning how to have a heart and Ana becoming determined to pursue the truth.
0: She's still my favorite.
1: I love her. I love them both. But it just, it feels like a shame because as much as having Jin and Hirobi targeting random Yuma gear that are not the ones that are being focused on by the episode establishes that their goals are not necessarily tied to the common Riders, and that they're not really watching them to decide what they're doing, if they had gone after the Yuma gear that Aruto was specifically interacting with, the show would be able to kind of be saying something really interesting about how treating these AI as people the way that Aruto does, instead of as something other, is what allows them to become self-aware and surpass just being an artificial intelligence and actually become people.
0: Yeah. And I honestly I feel like that's this is a thing that may hamper some of the show's storytelling if they do if they don't do some kind of course correction in the near term. Like even if they just take a bit to show that the these other human gears who are about to be overwritten by Mitsubo Jinrai uh have had good or in some way interesting or dramatic relationships with their purchasers and and like have that happen before the monster attack cuz like we're you know okay fine we're we're past the point where Aruto always needs to be interacting with the human gears so we could just have him doing corporate stuff while the various human gears have little one-off dramas that which are then brought to a head by being turned into magir and then restored by aruto after the battle or or something sure it'd be a whole different kind of formulaic but we'd be getting a bunch of really interesting bits of world building there which i mean that's kind of what happens in episode six but like they could go harder at it
1: yeah it's i just wish there were a couple of episodes that like started with Jin going out and making a Magir, and then Aruto kind of gets pulled into the drama of it, and, like, or, I don't know, maybe like, there are, like, other Magir that that one works with, and, like, all of them are kind of heading towards this kind of awakening, and that one was just the one who got there first.
0: Or, or, like, he, he, hey, my Magir got, sto- my human gear got stolen. What happened? Well, it, This guy came in and put a belt on it. And then we could have, like, Aruto or Yua or even Fua having a talk about, like, why are you so busted up about this? Okay, someone stole your car. Don't worry. We'll get you your car back. And then it just goes into, like, no, that's not my car. That robot is my friend. And we could could at least get some, some, like, indirect characterization. And, and a bit of like, ah, oh, yes, I will save you, I will stop you so that you can go back to being your your person's friend or, or something. I just, I, I'm just with you, is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm agreeing and I'm, I fear I'm starting to just restate what you just said.
1: It's, it's just, when they were choosing them at random, this was fine. But when you're bringing in the fact that they are choosing based on YumaGear awakening to self-awareness it kind of breaks down because the ones that Aruto are hanging out with are becoming way more self-aware than the bus driver. Yeah. I mean, maybe he is, I don't know, we don't know anything about him. He was in one shot before he was turned into a Magir.
0: He could be cool, but like you said, we we don't know.
1: It did make me happy, though, that G-Pen gets to write the manga sometimes. Like, he gets to write a chapter- like, this is your manga, G-Pen. I'm proud of you. You did All it.
0: right. Yeah, like, look, and it, it is rough that the dude, that uh, Choichiro, whose name I'm going to remember because his name is Super One, essentially. I, I don't know enough Japanese to know if that's literally true, but that's how, that's my mnemonic device. Um, but, like, it, it sucks that Cho- Choichiro gets to Bob Kane G-Pen, but at least he did the work, and that's worth something. I hope he gets restored, goes rogue, maybe he goes to Daybreak Town, who knows, and starts a manga all of his own, and then we can see him later on being acknowledged as the first Humagear manga, mangaka, rather. I I
1: do really hope that, because I do think that he is the one that's still with uh, Choichiro at the end. I think it's a restored version of him, but you know- a common thing with assistants is that they eventually go on to do their own manga, and I hope that even though you know Choichiro he is Choichiro's Yumagir. Choichiro's was like, hey, you wrote some of the chapters of Perfume Man. Why don't you try just writing writing your own thing, and we'll we'll submit it and we'll see what they think.
0: I would be a okay with this.
1: And they can kind of you know clamp it. They can Maybe they can become since... clamp that be except Robot like Clan. way less gay
0: exactly. or maybe
1: just as gay who knows
0: yeah like we don't we don't actually know what's going on in perfume man like it could be mega gay
1: i mean it could it is a furry manga
0: yeah i don't know enough about furry manga or furry comics generally to to make meaningful comment there but
1: i'm just saying furries furries are pretty gay and yeah, i love I, them for it
0: i've heard this to be true i just i don't know enough
1: um, but uh, does... All I know is
0: they keep the commissioned artist alive. They do. They, they can do. Yeah.
1: But this does actually kind of bring me to an interesting thought, because whether or not this is his perfume, Kakehi himself is a mangaka, as we discussed. Mm. He's lived by that incredibly awful schedule. He's seen yeah. the hard work that's put in. He's seen how utterly draining it can be. Like, there have to have been times where he's thought it would be easier if a machine could do all this for me. But the way that he, as the writer, is consistently framing that as the wrong approach, and that even just relying too much on your assistance and on technology, machine or not, will kind of pull you out of what you loved about making the story in the first place, and... It does touch a bit on the fact that manga isn't really created by one person alone. There are assistants and editors and all sorts of people who have their hands in it. Some, some manga editors will pretty much write the story. I know there was apparently a chunk of Naruto that was basically written by the editor. Really? Um, like, very early on. And even if... But even if, you know, only the original creator's name is what's on the cover all of these people probably feel like they've got a bit of ownership over certain characters or parts of the story or just like settings because you know again backgrounds are usually delegated to assistants and i feel like if i was the assistant who drew all of the backgrounds for i don't know what's what's a shonen manga the kids know these days that has a really distinct setting. Like, I guess Yaiba. If I was the assistant on Kimetsu no Yaiba, and I was doing the backgrounds, I feel like I'd have a lot of- I feel like I'd have this sense of ownership over the world, the physical world the story is set in. And it's- The way Aruto reacts when he finally kind of confronts Choichiro- saying, like, I grew up on this, I looked forward to it every week, and I laughed and I cried with it, and it shaped me as a person. I feel like Kakehi is aware of the effect that stories can have on people and what creating those stories means.
0: Which just, which made the way he acted at first just, oh, that sucked. (laughs) I'm just imagining going to Comic-Con and finding, like, someone who wrote a comic that meant something to me as a kid and they're just like, Oh, I'm I'm glad you liked it, but uh, it's just a job, son. Like, uh Like, that's where I said out loud, uh just never meet your heroes, kids. And then almost immediately, like, there's a cut and Aruto is just talking to Izu, just like, ah, oh, you should never meet your heroes. I was just like Yeah, it was just such a rough moment. <laughs> it was hard in a way that is Really hard to describe, and one that I think a lot of kids might—it just might go right over their heads.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, I—that
0: is is some adult nerd stuff.
1: Yeah, no, and I—I definitely feel that in kind of a weird way because I feel like I got kind of lucky in that, like, one of my heroes as a creator is kind of also one of my contemporaries. Oh. Very nice. Um, Where, you know, she's... I feel like she's only maybe a year or two older than me, and I've met her a bunch, and she's amazing. She's a wonderful person. Her husband is also amazing. Awesome. And I'm like, oh, I... And, like, over the years, like... Because I think I was still in high school when I met her for the first time. And just over the years, kind of, the more that I've known her kind of very casually of course but the more that I've seen her over and over at, over the years at different events and I'm like oh I dodged a bullet in not having you know like a really big corporate hero as a comic artist
0: yes yes you did cuz every now and again one that you love will come out and they'll they're, they'll open their their mouth and you'll just be like why why did you have to do that? I liked you. But
1: just, this, this yeah. episode just not only feels like an examination of mangaka and the whole structure and culture that's built up around creating manga, and like how rough that can be and how draining that can be, and kind of like a critique on burnout. hmm It also kind of feels like kakehi's own feelings about his time creating manga and i have a lot of respect for that and again just having him be a mangaka who is also well versed enough in doing tv and film to have written this episode just brings in this really interesting perspective
0: oh it it does and also like in in a less kind of depressing sense because Boy, talking about burnout is really depressing because it is real and it is Ooh, dangerous and so it bad. sucks.
1: It is the worst.
0: But I also think it's an interesting way or an interesting opportunity for them to tell the kids at home how manga gets made. Like, sure, there's there's one or two names on the on the in the credits, but they're not the only people who did it. It's a lot of work. By a lot of people, and that work deserves both your pay, both your money, and your respect. Yeah. It's just,
1: yeah. I mean, the the irony here is that assistants are usually paid out of pocket by the mangaka. They're not. Oh. Uh, they're not like assigned by the publisher and paid by the publisher. Usually, a a mangaka will hire some amount of assistants themselves and pay them directly. Um, which kind of adds another level to just buying a Yuma gear to keep in your house to do that work.
0: Oof. Yeah. Cause I mean, I-, I can see why like, okay, the individual mangaka, they hire their own staff does kind of ease up the rights and credits issues after a fashion. Cause like it's, yeah, sure. It's, it's me, but it's me, the company, the employer. <laughs> The company made this. It's just that we call the company my name. Just yeah, but also, boy, the the yeah, you aren't kidding about another level to the just buying a human gear to keep in your house because that is um whew, how frightful it must be to be asked to be a live in twenty four hour art machine, which yeah. is like given the talk I've heard over the years from a number of artists, um. That's how a frightful number of people think about and talk about artists generally, which is um, hot, smelly garbage in the summertime. Because uh, don't, don't just... If you, if you call... If, I, if you ever get the feeling like, I should call this person Art Monkey, or Art Robot, um, don't. Do not. And, and honestly, if you're commissioning someone, make sure to just be like, if, if they say, hey, this is going to be late, you know what you say? Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, look. If it. you need a deadline, establish that at the beginning.
0: Yeah, and and if also they ask
1: for more. yeah, if they ask for a fee for having it by a deadline, you pay it, and always tip your artists. I have been so lucky in that everyone I commit that commissions me will pretty much has always tipped me. Bless them all. Um, I love each and every one of you you're all wonderful.
0: Yeah, I like I don't I don't get to commission art that often, but when I do, like I I tip and and if I can't tip, then it's just like there's a thing just in there just hey, I'm like I'm low priority because honestly if if I'm paying for a commission, um they're probably like being really cheap about it. <laughs> so like I'm never going to be like, yes, my little piddling thing That will get you next to no money compared to what your work is worth. It's just the thing of, if you can't do the art yourself, show respect to the people you expect to do it for you. Because if you don't respect them, why were you asking that person to do the art for you? Yeah. Because if you don't respect the artist, you don't respect the art, why are you bothering to ask for it? Because you don't care about it that much. I just, I have a lot of feelings about these things.
1: I, too, have a lot of feelings about these things, because I have lived on both sides of that line.
0: Yeah, and being cool is free, is the thing.
1: It is. Being cool costs zero dollars. Yeah,
0: and even if you, like, you should tip, but if you're cool and you don't, and you can't tip, for, you know, whatever reason, I'm not judging, um, if you're cool, they'll probably still want to work with you again sometime. Yeah. Because... You were cool to them because everything just comes down to these people are doing you like anyone who's doing art for you, unless you're paying them like full on corporate rates. For a specific big project, they're basically doing you a favor at whatever price they're offering. Treat them like they're doing you a favor. (laughs) I just yeah, we're we're on that. We should probably just keep going, because otherwise Uh, it's just going to be... Yeah, circling back. Speaking of
1: YumaGear becoming self-aware, I think Izu is taking those first steps. She was kind of introduced to this idea of passion and didn't really understand what it was. And she kind of went in and she figured out the logistics of it, and while it's not on paper as something someone needs to buy a YumaGear... It is, she does kind of understand it's something that everyone needs to be able to live happily. They need to have some kind of passion for something. And if having Yumagir has stripped Choichiro of his passion for creating manga, then she's like, well, you're better off not having them. So I'm not gonna give them to you. And she made that decision by herself from... Influenced by the people around her and her memories and her feelings towards those people about them knowing what is right, and she's growing. And I'm proud of her.
0: Me too. Especially since, on top of making that cool decision, which I thought was pretty cool, uh, she also, in her very chill, very huma way, got right up in Ichiro's face about it. yeah. Just like, hey, sorry, you said these things were draining your passion, so um, you don't need them. You don't have them anymore. Enjoy your passion. Just, except in a very, just the low-key customer service voice way. She's just so cool, and I hope one day we get... Honestly, okay, we talked about the opening. I want them to give me some sort of confirmation or elaboration on the bit in the opening which symbolically frames her as part of Zero-One. Because, okay, you know that bit in the opening where everyone's in their human forms and then there's there's Izu and Aruto in the front? And then they all, like, flash into their Common Rider forms. But then Zero-One is alone without Izu there, which, to me, subtextually means that uh, Izu is a part of Zero-One and you... Cannot convince me that her code, at the very least, is not somehow integrated into or affecting zero one.
1: I mean, in that first episode, she was there in the suit when he was like first transformed and pointed him towards the tutorial.
0: True, 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 true. But now I just like as I'm saying that, I just want an episode where she has to control the suit like Venom style because Otto's too messed up to use it or something look, I know there's creepy body horror implications there, and goodness knows when a similar thing happened back in Drive, I definitely called it a crazy horror movie monster moment. But, look, there's a lot of creepy body horror in Zero-One generally, and I'm here for her taking the wheel in the Zero-One suit to save Aruto's life or something. Not only because I want to see Izu kick some faces, but let's be clear, I do. Um, but also because I want to see Yuya know. Yuya Nawata, the the current suit actor, take a shot at that most Takaiwa Seiji of moves, a body language performance that sells a different intelligence in the same body. I want him to do a minor deno.
1: God, yeah, like, I'd be so down for that, because, like, one, it would be a really interesting take on Izu's role with Aruto, Mm. and also it would kind of explain why she just kind of stands in the middle of fights. Yeah, she's If she's, like, kind of putting herself crap. in the suit.
0: Yeah, because I... You'd, you'd have to work hard to convince me that kid already knows how to do with that much uh, unarmed combat.
1: Yeah, you know, she's just kind of in there, just kind of pointing the programs in the right direction. And, you know, she's too busy doing that to move her body out of the way. Because yeah, she, she really is. does just stand there when a fight happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, she does. Though I'm I'm very much a fan of the fact that while I'm generally very frustrated with any time they just have the lady just stand off to the side, she's just standing off to the side being a gear, and not, like, standing off to the side looking, oh, I'm so concerned, but I cannot do or say anything about that fact because reasons. But it's very important that I'm in this shot looking upset
1: like anyway, one way or another, Izu is always standing there analyzing the fight because every time she stands in the middle of a fight, she comes to the next fight with a new progress key. so she's at least doing something
0: yeah she's always she's she's paying attention she's getting the replays she's analyzing the enemy she's she is she's the combat she's the tactics part of zero one
1: she's kango on some level yeah
0: yeah actually yeah. That makes it even better. Um, okay, here's a silly thing. Speaking of huma gears, there's there's that like workshop office where they have the big three uh, D printer.
1: The ghost basement.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly the ghost basement. And there's that bit when like Izu is like, "Hmm, what is passion?" You see the the huma gear suits hanging in these uh, glass cases in the back, and I just. I'm so fascinated by the different generations of gear that are on display because one of them has a head that looks weird and dramatic and kind of pointy. And I keep wondering, is this an earlier version or a prototype for the next generation? What, what are the stories with these, with these just slug bodies? I want to know. Yes. Um, and I just love that the show can get me so invested in, uh, and in the lore just background yeah like I'm so invested in the lore of the world because of how much weird stuff is just happening in the background it's just neat I like the show
1: I also really adore the bit of Choichiro trying to throw Aruto the plastic prop sword as if it would be diegetically useful at all <sighs> Like, it's it's a plastic prop from, like, a Toys R Us, and he's like, Here, masked hero, I'm sure this sword will help. But, like, it's such a shonen protagonist thing to do that him doing it really does feel like his passion for creating a shonen manga has been reignited.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, it is... It,
1: it was just really cute seeing him kind of embody the mentality of his lead character. Because I have yes. to assume that's what weird sword, sword dog boy is like.
0: Yeah. I. It really reads like such a Shonen protagonist move. To the point where you know what's going on, and I know I should have hated it. But also, they were so earnest about it. And honestly, if if you're a certain kind of earnest, I can't hate it. I am just temperamentally incapable of having anything bad to say about it.
1: Yeah, no, that- see- my whole thing is commit to the bit. And they committed to the bit.
0: Look, if you if you commit to the bit, I'm here. Like maybe that's maybe that's all the D and D I run, but yes and I'm that's what I'm here for. I will yes and anything in these shows. Just don't invalidate the premise, you guys.
1: Yeah, no. I mean it's very it's very, very simple. All I ask is commit to the bit, and that was Zio's problem. Zio, yeah. Zio did not have a bit to commit to. Like, I hate Gaim, but I it had a bit, and it did commit to it. The bit was just bad.
0: Yeah. Same problem with Drive.
1: Nope, Drive, did, Drive had a bit that was not inherently bad, but it would not commit
0: to it. Okay. Yeah, no, I can see that.
1: Because, I mean, like, Drive did the opposite of what Drive said it was about. Any time, like, Drive said it was about this one thing, and then, like, Shinosuke would just do the opposite of that.
0: Very true. Very true.
1: And then Zio just didn't have a bit. It had nothing to commit to. It wanted to commit to something, and there was just nothing for it to commit to.
0: Yeah, no, that's, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that.
1: Where I feel like Zero One is willing to commit, and I'm here for that.
0: Same. Big, big same.
1: I also really love that Aruto refers to all of the progrise key animals very affectionately. Like he he refers to in these episodes, Burning Tiger and Flying Falcon as Torachan and Tori Chan, respectively. <laughs> and that was very, very cute. Yeah, it was. Like just when the tiger first shows up, he's like, Okay, Torachan, let's do it. And I'm like, oh my god, you're precious. Like, he is incapable of not loving everything that's ever helped him in any capacity, and it's, like, my favorite thing about him.
0: Which, I mean, look, I I can- I can- that's definitely a thing I like as well, but also it's completely reasonable for me, because the way they've been helping him is to keep him from being murdered to death by awesome killer death robots. I'd be friendly to him, too. I mean, that's fair. Like, like, hey guys- I'm going out drinking. You guys want to drink anything? No, we're keys. We don't have mouths. Do you want to just like sit in my beer? Uh, that would actually be very bad for us. Okay, then that won't happen. But just, uh, but also I just got to wonder, is there going to be a combined form? Because now we have all the pieces necessary for the O's Tatoba combo, or at least we did for a hot second, but we'll we'll get to that. I
1: mean, that's true. We do have all there, the pieces a, of Tatoba present.
0: Yeah, there's a tiger. I I don't know what the, the bird head of Tatoba was.
1: Uh, Tanka, I, so it was a
0: hawk. Yeah, this is a hawk, isn't it? No, is it a falcon?
1: It's the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a raptor bird. It's fine. <laughs> they're, don't... The,
1: they're the same thing.
0: Good, cool, right. Yeah, then, takah, Bata, b- <laughs> but, uh, wait, no. Taka, Tora, Bata. Like, I just want it to happen. Because this show got some O's in it, and y'all, I'm for that. That's true. <laughs> Rewatching O's not too long ago? O's real good, y'all.
1: I need to rewatch O's. It's been a long time. Um, I felt really bad for Aruto when Choichiro's like, I made a new character because of the fight that I watched. You guys were so cool, and it inspired this new character, and then it's Fua. Like, that's a really good joke, but I just felt so bad for him. Because, like, Aruto loves this manga. He grew up on it. It's so important to him. For all we know, Fu has never read it. And, like, it's a manga full of furries. Come on, man. Just make him a cool tiger, dude. Just do it. Your manga's full of furries. There's already a cat girl. Just make him a tiger.
0: I mean, like, look, yes, it is a good joke. But at the same time, I just, I wanted... Choichiro to just roll up like, hey, don't worry, uh, here's the sketch for the cool tiger guy who's coming. He just he's just gonna show up a little later. Trust me, it's gonna rule. Like, okay, like let Fua have the thing. We can all have the joke. But then, hey, what's up, dude? Uh, you're a hero, and your your hero has acknowledged it, thus redeeming him from the never meet your heroes bit at the start of the show. But you know, whatever. Also, speaking of of manga. And and Burning Tiger and all that, uh, Shibasaki Takayuki or whoever in there is doing the the stuff the digital effects at Toei did a great job with those manga overlays during the fight. That was really fun. I I had I had such a laugh about it.
1: They were a really cute bit, and whoever was helming After Effects like deserves a high five. That was very cute.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good. Um. I think that gets us into number six.
1: I love so seeing you... Aruto excited about stuff. I love it. Like, he's a good kid and he deserves to hang out and get an autograph from the voice actress playing his favorite anime hero, who, by the way, is, like, a pretty big voice actress. Oh, really? Uh, I just, out of curiosity, I went and looked her up. She's been in a lot of things. Um, I, she's been in a couple, like, big shonen things. She's in Hunter Hunter. Um, oh. And there was another one. She's like one of the people in Hunter Hunter whose name's whose name I recognize. I don't know anything about Hunter Hunter, but I like it's it's one of the names that I remember people saying. So I think she's like a fairly big character in Hunter Hunter. Um <laughs> she's in Seven Deadly Sins as like one of my favorite characters. But there was another big like big shonen property that she was in that I forget who she was in it and I forget what it was. But uh you know he he deserves to get that autograph. And you know kind of as an aside I lost it a bit when uh Sené is just dubbed over with an actual cat meow. <laughs> Cuz that was bonkers and I loved it.
0: Yeah, no, that was that was really funny. And there's a lot of great comedy to be mined from that. And I I hope they get to later.
1: So I, I know I keep coming back to this, but I've got this really complex relationship with Jin as a character because I hate him with that stupid gun. I hate it. But having him literally have to Google the dictionary definition of what being a son is and what, like, having a parent is and then having these really visceral reactions to the concept of family and trying to understand the relationship between himself and Hirobi in that context is really interesting, and I really like it. Like, he's three steps away from realizing that his parent is abusing and taking advantage of him and reaching his own self-awareness from that, and I'd love to see how that plays out, but the gun has got to go.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm really hoping there's a bit where we find out the gun was, like, the first possession Hirobi gave him, and that's why he, he treats it so kind of, not frivolously, but but he doesn't seem to appreciate the weight that it should have. And that's why he's got like a bunch of sh- cell phone charms just hanging off of it. But then he, he starts to understand, because like, honestly, on a symbolic level, hey, son, welcome to the world. Here's a gun. Go murder people like that. On, on just a like on a show-don't-tell level, on a, on a ham-fisted level, that would say everything about their relationship, and would also mean that when he breaks away from his awful dad, uh, we can symbolize that by him chucking the, the gun into the undoubtedly already incredibly polluted waters of the Sunken City.
1: Yeah, like, there's a lot of good to be mined there if you have him physically remove the gun. And I guess I do agree with you can't make a Yuma gear that looks like another person without permission, and the dead cannot give permission. Like, I feel like, yeah, I'm kind, I'm kind of down with that. Because that's definitely yeah. something that needs to be defined early and enforced often, lest you end up with the episode of Futurama where Fry dates robot Lucy Liu. Thus the title of this episode. And... I get that, like, the reason that this dude has the Yuma gear looking the way he does is different, and it's him trying to cope with the trauma of losing his fairly young daughter. She seemed like she was maybe in her early 20s, and I sympathize with that, I do. But I gotta admit, I'm kinda with Fua, or at least with the letter of the law on this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, look- You thought the concept of deep fakes was scary? What happens when someone just rolls up with a perfect double who just does whatever it is you want to defame someone with? It's Their, like, your own face is no longer your property. That's a nightmare.
1: And on top of that, not only is there the risk of some real creepy gross stuff in, you know, making a copy of a person to do whatever you want with, Um, It's also deeply unfair to the Yuma Gear, who is being used as a replacement person instead of getting to live as an individual, because these are very advanced AI with their own personalities. So there's basically no level of this that isn't completely awful.
0: Yeah, truth. I mean, you hear enough horror stories about parents who try to make their kids into miniature versions of their idealized younger selves, and the awful trauma that can inflict on the kid, but having to pretend to be the idealized version of some other person who is dead and can never like fall out of that out of the person's favor yikes that's that's too much pressure, though saying that like it does raise questions of how good a replacement she's even been. not that I think dude requires a very good replacement cause just. <laughs> The weird cognitive knot you'd get in, like, well, she's not acting like the real one, but I've always known she's not the real one, etc. Just, it's just a question of how he could even get the lookalike to be any kind of stand-in. And look, um, for all I do tend to roll my eyes at a lot of the latter seasons of, of Black Mirror, there's one episode in, I want to say like the first or second season, I- I'll put it down in the as mentioned, um, that deals with exactly this sort of setup and it is just heartbreaking
1: and i'm i'm gonna say one of the several reasons that i just hate luca in gokaiger is that she does this to ahim in relation to her lost sister and it was a thing that very specifically like when she explained it it made my skin crawl and it's it's a thing that i've never had anyone else even who dislikes her like bring up that she did and i'm like I sympathize with the fact that she lost her sister, but that's a really awful way to be treating Ahim.
0: On yeah. top of the
1: fact that you punch all of your other friends.
0: Yeah, no, that's... I mean, it's it's one of those things where, much like with uh, the, the gentleman in this show, like you're like, okay, you're doing a bad thing for an understandable reason, but you, we still have to get... We still have to address the part where it's not healthy or good for anyone involved.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're you're treating another living person in this way that you're taking away their personhood, and it's awful.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not a way to treat people. Honestly, it's not it's it's also not a way to treat something you don't regard as people. Don't treat anyone that way or anything. It's just it's bad.
1: It's just awful all around. So I can't wait to find out who this guy giving Ryder stuff to Yua is. I'm not sure if he's, like, just the boss of Ames or is involved in one of the other tech companies from Daybreak, like that other one that had the big logo. Like, I just can't wait to see him try to pull some shady nonsense and for Yua to dunk him into, like, the next county.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely here for this. Because she is both too principled and too hardcore, to take someone messing with her when she's out there keeping the peace. Especially since the things she keeps the peace against are, again, awesome killer robots sent out by at least one potentially awesome robot terrorist. And and she's, she's not going to put up with that. She's already putting up with Fu's insubordination and, and, again, a bunch of killer robots. She's definitely not paid enough to also put up with this dude being shady. But, oh, I I do hope she ends up being related to that one company from the Anna episode, because that would be just a really good bit of circle closing. Yeah. Also, I just, I really do hope there's a bit where they try to say to Fuwa, like, not Fuwa, uh, Yua, rather, uh, they rhyme, it sucks. (laughs) Uh, But where they try to tell Yua that she's no longer authorized to do this, and she just pulls the Fuwa. Or, even better, she's like, she's just like, oh, okay. And then she just does it anyway. Like, wait, no, you shouldn't be able to open that. Oh, no, I hacked these. <laughs> From the off, every time I get them, I just made sure that I could always use them. Because I'm a professional, and I don't trust you people. Bless. Why would anyone ever trust a private military organization, is all I'm saying. Exactly. It's, it's not a smart thing to do.
1: So, who oh boy, that moment when, uh, Sine transitions from rebooting and, like, excitedly calling this dude Papa to the look that she gets and the shake in her voice when her programming kind of, like, adjusts itself and she goes back to calling him sir and apologizes, like, that is gut-wrenching. Yeah, it is. Like, you can tell that's the moment of dawning self-awareness that gets her targeted because there is just something so tragically human in that response
0: like I didn't know she was actually a kind of an accomplished voice actor but that's no, not explained. her
1: um, there's the uh, the human voice actor that she's with in that recording booth scene, oh
0: okay well then even who is
1: playing the main character of perfume man
0: that's right that's right just sorry good well then just anyway but my point Remains that uh, the people playing the Huma Gears definitely deserve some rewards awards because uh, there's a lot going on under the surface and you feel every bit of it. It's really good.
1: It really is amazing how well, literally all of them, have played Huma Gear. I mean, it's only we're only six episodes in, but there's not been a single stumble so far.
0: Which, wow, that's impressive. I hope they can keep it up.
1: Yeah. God, I hope. And then, man, just the ache in Aruto as he's watching that all unfold. And, (sighs) I mean, we find out in the next scene that the father that we've known for Aruto was a kind of astroboid replacement in a similar manner for his own father who passed away when he was very young. But having that come after we see how hard this is hitting him... Getting to see that emotion first was a really great choice. Mm -hmm. Like, I am a little bit bummed that the Yuma-gear is not somehow his biological father. (laughs) But, but, that doesn't make him not Aruto's dad. Very true. And, I mean, I've got some very complex thoughts on pulling an Astro Boy with the Yuma-gears and that doesn't really change now that we know this, but again I can sympathize because loss is very hard and it sucks, especially losing a parent or a child. And it's it's just nice to see that Arto is in that same place where he knows this isn't right and that it shouldn't be happening, but he can sympathize.
0: Yeah. Because I think more than anything, I just appreciate that it's them going out and saying, hey, pain is real. Because, I don't know, I, I live, I, I see bits of people online, I almost was one of those garbage people who would say, like, facts don't care about your feelings, and you feeling emotional pain is a feeling, and therefore it's not real. Or whatever weird convoluted nonsense they do to get there. Because, like, pain, pain is real. Paint is the most real. <laughs> and, like, sometimes you find maladaptive things to paper over it, so it hurts less. And that's understandable. <laughs> Even if it's not good or helpful, it's understandable. Because sometimes you fall into the internet. Sometimes you get a new pet. Sometimes it's expensive pieces of high-end electronics who can put you in the awful space of both having a version of what you've lost that you also, cannot help but realize is utterly and completely not what you lost in the slightest. Seriously, there is just some really nice examination of of really heavy subject matter with a lot of interesting subtext going on, and I'm I'm here for it on this show, even though it is depressing as heck. Though I mean, that is kind of why we show up for these year-long Toei Tokusatsu productions, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Okay, to get into maybe a little less existentially horrifying place, I am so curious about Aruto's mom now. Like, did she die in the same event that claimed his dad? Or did she survive and just had to bail because her father-in-law made a weird robot zombie version of the man she loved and she couldn't take this robo-ghost of him away from her son, so, like, she just ran or something. There's just a lot of really good drama in there potentially, and I'm hoping that she's in Ames somehow, which is just putting See, everything that,
1: together. That would that would be a really interesting way to pull everything together, and man, I sure wish I had any faith that this was a question that we were going to get an answer to. Because you're right, yeah. there's some real good drama there, but common riders don't get moms, and I'm still salty that X8 never addressed Hero's mom. So Yuya is not innocent here. Sorry, not sorry.
0: So no, I'm glad you're not sorry because you shouldn't be. Yuya is definitely one of the better common writer writers that we've had in a in a while. But at the same time, dude is not without his stumbling blocks. And dang it, it's year one of the Reiwa era. In the Reiwa era, common writers can have moms. Let them
1: have moms.
0: Let's do this, because- Just
1: give the boy a mom. Set a precedent. Have her just show up.
0: Yeah, you can just do, like, uh, that one episode of Shinkenger, where, hey, my mom's coming over, and she's just there for an episode, and then she goes away.
1: I mean, frankly, you can pull a ghost sager, where it's, hey, my mom is coming over. Oh, no, the plot is happening. We have to take care of it before my mom gets here. Oh, my mom's not coming because she missed the train. Like, you literally, just tell me who and where she is. You don't even need to put her on screen. I will take anything.
0: Honestly? Like, you don't have to put her on screen, just like, Hey, what's up? Aruto, your mom's coming over. Why do you look so upset? Oh, we have a really complicated relationship. Not only can we say, hey, moms exist, but also, Hey, you can still be a good person if you have a complicated relationship with your parents. Yeah. Because, um... Honestly, I feel like that's a thing this show, just with what they've set up so far, would be very good at expressing, because that's what uh, Hirobi's about.
1: Yeah, and, like, having that be Jin and Harobi's whole thing, and keeping Jin as kind of this weird foil to Aruto, it would be really interesting to talk about Aruto's family more.
0: Yeah, it really would.
1: And then you'd have Jim be like, "Hey, Hirobi, who's my mom?" It's like, "No, you don't get a mom."
0: I I am I am the uber masculine man. I have decided that my creation exists to dominate and destroy, and you don't have a mother. So, do you still love me, Dad? No. Oh, I made myself sad for Jen. <laughs> Jin, just put your gun away.
1: <laughs> just yeah, just stop. Like. And coming coming back to that, kind of, there's this really interesting dynamic to build between Aruto, who sees the Yumagir who raised him as his father, and who is pretty open and willing to take on any Yumagir as a member of his family, and Jin, and having him kind of opposed to Jin, and Jin being a foil for Aruto where Jin is this self-aware Yuma-gear who seems pretty desperate to know and understand family relationships and kind of gain that for himself. Yeah. Aruto's lionizing of parents in the middle end of this episode runs a pretty high risk of ending up like Ghost, which was not great
0: No. Yeah. in
1: that regard, but I think having that direct parallel of Jin seeing Hirobi as his parent. And Jin's treatment or er, of Hiro- and Hirobi's treatment of Jin being framed by the narrative explicitly as this is bad and a problem and there's nothing redeemable about it. Like that kind of does a lot to ease back on that and frame it explicitly as, hey kids, this guy over here is a good parent, and a good parent will put your needs first and protect you, but sometimes there's God, there's parents like this guy who will put their need ahead of yours and use you to their own ends, and they're bad. And, like, there's nuance to this, so just examine your relationship with your parents, kids. Yeah. Like, that's kind of a, a level that ghosts never really got to exactly. that we're already getting to here in Zero One.
0: Mm. And, look, whatever happens, I think there's a lot of really fascinating exploration to be done here. And, I mean, I don't think they're gonna biff it like ghosts did, because, like you said, they're already kind of a bit past it. But I just, I want them to keep on with it. Because discussions of what is and isn't healthy, and what is, and, like, how maybe to recognize, okay, you're in a bad situation, here's how to maybe survive, or keep your head in place, or at least... Be aware that it's a bad situation, and don't mistake the bad situation for normal, or healthy, or good. That's, like, that's a darn sight better than, well, look, your parents mean to you because they had a hard time. That's not, it's not very helpful. (laughs) I just, I wish we could paint a smile and erase all the awful stuff in the world, but you can't. And any time Kamen Rider tries to do that, it falls flat. Sorry, Ghost, I want to love you, but you you know you messed up there.
1: I mean, I do love Ghost, but I'm not going to forget it that.
0: But at the same time, like, I will say Ryder and Sentai even have long had some very interesting observations to make about being a kid who's in one of the, in these weird situations, not weird, they're actually frightfully common, in these bad situations, that, like, I, I... I'm guessing the kids at home must be able to make something out of, because it they're still talking about it years later, and that's, overall, I think that's a good thing. Just, I just, I want everyone to be better. <laughs> anyway. I was, let's let's move on, because this is really depressing.
1: Okay, so, on to something much lighter, um, having Seine's broken headphone thing covered with, like, a cute fruit-patterned washi tape was very, very cute. It made me think of, like, kids' bandages, Mm -hmm. and I just thought it was this really sweet little detail, because they didn't have to do that, but if this guy really does love her as his daughter, he wouldn't want her to just go out with a scraped knee that hasn't been taken care of, of course he'd give her a band-aid.
0: I mean, yeah, yeah, look, that dude's kind of skeeved me out for most of the episode- even, again, I can wrap my head around why he's behaving the way he is, but... Mm. But then I saw that bit, and yeah, suddenly... It's not that he's everything he's done is okay, but as a person, he seems alright in my book. Even though he sh- he's a person who should definitely be speaking to a mental health professional of some kind in the near future. Because he's just going to be delaying any kind of healing by keeping... Say A, or or that speaker he gets at the end of the episode, like that's not going to be very helpful, I don't think. No, at least not the way he's been he's been acting around it.
1: But, I mean, like at least it's slightly better in the short term.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And then
1: you know he can kind of move away from it.
0: Yeah, but just he should speak to a, a counselor or a therapist or something. Just, but at the same time. Like, getting back around away from the the kind of depressing stuff I was going back into. Real sorry, it's some downer subject matter. Um, but at the same time, like you're saying, like he took the time to bandage up her, whatever the headphones are, processors, I'm guessing? I don't know. But I was just on his side immediately when I saw it because, yeah, he has a really complicated and definitely messed up relationship with this cool robot who he made look like and sound like his daughter but it does feel like there's affection between them that is real and look it's messed up sure but it's real and that ain't nothing
1: it's just this sort of gesture that makes it clear that even though this is kind of a messed up thing to have done he is seeing sane as his daughter in a way that isn't totally self-serving She's not just an object he bought to cope with his trauma. He does legitimately care about her well-being, and I can appreciate that much. Because it's it's not even like he just kind of duct tape or, like, put duct tape over it, or put, like, duct taped a piece of cloth over it. He made sure it was this, like, really cute thing that she would like.
0: And just, it, it. Again, you, you brought up, like, it's like his daughter skinned her knee. And, of course, you know, yeah, I'm going to patch you up. I'm going to send you out with, with the the kid bandage. And, like, sure, she's a grown woman. Or she looks like a grown woman. She's a robot. She's probably only, like, a year or two old. But it's it's just such a, like, a parental affection move. I just, I, I'm on his side. Even, again, as, like, my being on his side is, okay, I'm going to... Uh, tell you what, buddy. You just sit there. I'm gonna go look up a counselor for you. <laughs> let's find. Let's find like a support group for for parents who've lost their kids. Like that. That would probably help you a lot more. Yeah, a little bit. And then like, you know, you can be the one guy who's like, Yeah, I uh, I bought a robot, <laughs> and just like a couple of them were like, How'd that work? Oh, not good. <laughs> Didn't help actually. Uh yeah, that sucks. <laughs> I. Honestly, I I would. This show is very good. Zero One is very good at making characters that I just want to follow. I like. I want to see how that guy's doing. In like, it's just, I want to see how he's doing over the course of this year. Yeah. I, I just want to watch him like figure out how to get more healthy. Because I mean, like, it's not gonna it's not gonna make the hurt go away. But like, hey, how can you manage it? How can you handle it? Let's. Does he have friends who can help him out? I want him to. I bet he does. He seems like a cool guy. And admittingly, a lot of his friends probably were like, Okay, wow. I don't want to hang out with you if you're hanging out with your zombie daughter. We all liked her too. This is really messed up, dude. Anyway, let's move on because I, I can tell this is getting kind of dark again. But admittedly, this show uh, getting dark.
1: A little bit. Um, but in really genre really...
0: and audience appropriate ways, and I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I do appreciate Jin physically dropping his gun to try and save Seine. As if, you know, he could just pull off the belt or running away would do anything in this situation. But also, it's Jin and he doesn't really understand how a lot of things work, so I'm fine with kind of his reaction. But it's, you know, as we said, the gun represents a lot of things, and he let go of the symbol of these really toxic beliefs... To try and protect a relationship he sees as valuable, even if that relationship isn't his and belongs to someone else. Like, I think it says a lot that he really didn't have a moment where he's, like, goes to say is like, I want this. I want to, like, step into this role that you have. He just tries to save her from becoming something that will take her away from this relationship. And if this is the last of his gun, or if, I guess, even if in, in the near future it's the last of his gun, I'm kind of willing to keep a path to redemption open for him. But he can't have it both ways.
0: Yeah, he no, needs that's... to get rid of the gun. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I, I imagine we're probably going to be seeing it a few more times, because it feels like he's kind of early into an arc that feels like it it'd be really important and potentially kind of affecting, but also one we'd be seeing a lot of back and forth about. Like I, I imagine we'll be seeing a lot of pointing the gun, but maybe not pulling the trigger as often as, as part of his easing in. Cause yeah, he is starting to have his own conception of what it is to be a person, but it's hard to move entirely away from your programming, whether that programming is computer or social. I just like, look, I wouldn't mind if you were right though, Soto, cause, uh, Jin could be a really fascinating character, and I want to see us get him there. But also, just like, I appreciate him dropping the gun. I kind of feel like we're gonna need him to throw the gun, figuratively or literally, back in Hirobi's face before we get to that redemption. Fair enough. But also, I do kind of hope he does. He just literally throws it at him. That'd be funny. Also, okay. Odds of Hirobi being an earlier generation or like like a, a part of a sister line to the main Huma gear line. Cause like, look, we don't see his origins ears. So it's hard to say, but I feel like we're, we're at 50, 50 that he's that Harobi's a robot too, but maybe oh, not. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm, I'm assuming Jin, because hirobi says that he created Jin. I'm assuming Jin maybe cobbled together from parts of broken Huma gear that are just in daybreak town.
0: There would be a few.
1: Hirobi was alive at least before Daybreak, so he's at least one of the, mo- at, like, bare minimum, he's one of those models. I think it would be interesting if he was some kind of knockoff by that competing company.
0: Yeah, just, or, or like, they they wanted to make, like, an economy line of Huma Gears, or I guess, yeah. the, on the other side, like, the luxury line, but he's, they just didn't mass produce them.
1: It's, I am betting that Hirobi broke his headphones off as a form of rebellion.
0: Uh, that would actually make me like him a lot more. So I uh, hope that's not the case, because, uh, sorry, that is pretty cool.
1: That's kind of where I'm feeling with him, because it, like, his headband thing doesn't stick out far enough to have it under it. But, like, he would, of course, if he broke those off, there would be a lot of exposed stuff that he'd want to cover up. Mm. Um, where anytime Jin has put his hood down, his hair sticks out in, at the sides in such a way that makes me feel like he's got kind of the mechanics of the headphones under his hair,
0: but yeah, not, not the like full, the like,
1: yeah, not the full, like, kind of wing-shaped shell of mm. them, because it's... It's weird, and there's never really a good shot of it, but his hair does kind of puff out over his ears.
0: Yeah, I just, I really, I really like the design and costuming in this show. It's really good. Zero One has not, like, there's a couple bits where I might, uh, you know, I have notes. I'm not saying it's 100% perfect in all ways, but wow, it's, this, this is a good show to open the arrow with. It really is. Also, okay, since we're talking about Jin and and Hirobe, I really appreciate that Jin and, again, presumably Hirobe, can use the Progrise keys instead of just the overridey ones. That, like, I just can't help but notice that they keep collecting them after the overridey ones are, are done or broken, which I don't know why they're doing it, but it feels so sinister. Which, look, I'm for that. But also, with the progrise keys being things that they can use, again, we we have that touch of O's, where now there is a subplot about who has which of the power MacGuffins, and there's going to be some give and take about it, which is super fun, and I'm glad we have it back, if only for a little.
1: Yeah, I I think my favorite thing about Jin and Hirobi's belt is that it forces the progrise keys open. Mm. like it it literally forces them to unlatch and flips them and open like a
0: weird skeleton pattern when they when they force it open that you don't see when the others do it
1: yeah I don't and think you see it's i think it's just it applies these different levels of who is able to use a progrise key because Arto has complete authorization to use any key he has at his discretion he does not have to do anything uh, Izu just has to toss it in his direction and he can use it. Yua has to be allowed to use them. Fua also has to be allowed to use them, but is not, and has to use his own strength of will in order to protect people. While Jin and Hirobi aren't allowed at all, and have created something to defy that, it's not their own strength that allows them to open the keys it's they have mechanically created something to do it for them. so the way in which everyone is using the keys to transform says kind of a lot about their stance in everything that's going on and it's
0: yeah I, I'd not thought about all of that, but you, once you lay it out like that, that's real good. And also, yeah, that's Takashi yuya
1: yeah and a thing that I really loved at the end of this episode that kind of builds on what I said back towards the end of episode five about Izu kind of growing and developing as a person is the bit where instead of having to explain to herself the word pun of A, I love you, she instead just mimics Aruto telling the joke. She no longer needs to have the joke spelled out to understand it, her now making the joke herself is enough to understand it and understand that it's a joke. She's coming into her own and developing a personality and a sense of humor based off of the way that Aruto is interacting with her. And, you know, Aruto had always complained, like, no, don't, you don't explain the joke. And she's learning, oh, you don't explain the joke, you just tell the joke. And Aruto kind of laughs and he does his kind of catchphrase with her.
0: It's just, it's just a shame that he's her model for humor. Because, who boy? That said, uh, the fact that she delivers all that stuff completely deadpan is amazing. <laughs> it actually sells a lot of the jokes so much better. And, and like you said, I'm glad that Aruto has stopped like complaining that she's saying the catchphrase. Because now I think she can... it was
1: less that she was saying the catchphrase and more that he was that she was kind of yeah. like stepping on his jokes and explaining them. Because usually when she'd do it, he'd be like, I wasn't even making a joke.
0: Ah, uh, true, yeah. It just, anyway, but um, I also want to throw out that uh, the A.I. love you, like, that's a good pun. Because, you know, A.I. I. love. That's, that's brilliant. Um, I don't know how much of that was in the, in the original Japanese, because I don't speak it. But uh, writer time, do some real good works on, work on the jokes.
1: I feel like essentially that's the meaning that's there. Yeah. Like that, I, I'm not sure like how, that translation is the spirit of the joke he's telling. Yeah. Like Which, that is the word pun that he's making.
0: Yeah. Which like, look, that's what you got to do because uh, very little humor crosses linguistic lines directly. It just, it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean my my favorite example remains uh it's just a comic panel 1 someone yells duck and then panel 2 the guy ducks as a duck flies over his head and uh-huh. you can't do that in any language where duck and duck are not the same word. Yeah. Anyway, um that's just I one more just one more time I like writer time and how they they do the humor cuz it's good seeing a couple people have problems And, uh, that's fine. Different aesthetics. Not gonna fight about it. Um, now we're on to the new suit roundup. Uh, Okay,
1: so, Burning Tiger. Yes. I like Burning Tiger a lot. Which surprised me, because it's red, but you've still got those fluorescent yellow bits, and I still hate Boost Goemon with the Passion of a Thousand Suns. But I think since they're never touching, you've never really got them right up against each other... There's kind of always black in between them. And with how much real estate the the burning tire bits takes up, the yellow becomes very understated. It's not bad.
0: No, I, I feel like the lighting probably did a lot for that. Because it just... We were seeing a lot of fire colors and that probably helped. Because the red felt to me like it, it was going a bit more toward the orange. Which... I would imagine eases the neon yellow. Again, I, I, not full color vision, so it's hard to say. I, I, could be talking crap. I just, I just actually really dig on the suit. I think it looks nice.
1: Yeah, the, the lighting really does help, but I did, uh, because I couldn't actually tell if it was red or, like, a red-orange looking at the scene, I did, I'm like, I need to go look up a magazine scan just to be sure of what these colors are. Mm. And it is a pretty solid, like, red ranger red okay but even in the magazines can like it didn't look that bad and i think it's just because the red and yellow are never on top of each other and they've always like got the black between them and there's just so little of the yellow mm. that i think it really helps
0: Wait, good i mean again i i think it's it's rather nice just it's not a fave but it, it's certainly not something I hate It's pleasantly in line with the rest of the zero one suits for my taste though. I will say in these episodes, um, I did start to notice that underneath the faceplate of zero one, there's a very Huma gear looking face or, or like a mechanical bit where the faceplate goes that, that really drove home for me, the idea that maybe the common rider suits in the show are just skinned Huma gears, which, uh, Either way, like, it's probably not the case, it's probably just how they they want to have the interface look, but uh, that's still Toei bringing body horror as far as I'm concerned, and I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've also noticed that, and... I don't know, I think maybe they're all just skinned Yuma Gears.
0: Like, look, I've... it's the easiest explanation, frankly. It, it's also the most horrifying, but you know what, that's fine. Also would explain why, if Jin and Hirobi are both uh, human gears, why they want to kill all of humanity. (laughs) Because you know what? (laughs) If someone made me, and then was started wearing, like, a copy of my skin, I'd probably have some kind of feelings about them. Yeah, fair enough. Probably some kind of aggression going, just saying.
1: Um, the, the, the shapes and, like, blocking of the tiger pits just also look really, really good, and I love that it has big, stupid paws, because that's my weakness.
0: I mean, look, that's a good weakness to have, because, um, those, those big old chonk hands are adorable.
1: They're so good.
0: Yeah. But I also agree that the, the way they use the armor, and how all the armor bits have, like, slices taken out of it to suggest the tiger stripes, like, that's- that's a really good bit. They, again, this is not a favorite suit. I like Zero-One. I don't love Zero-One. But Zero-One has yet to have a truly bad suit.
1: Yeah, the shark one is pretty
0: bad. Again, I not full color vision. I'm fine with it. <laughs> uh, from there, we move to Common Rider Jin.
1: Okay, so before I get into how this suit looks, I just want to put it out there that I'm getting more and more bugged as time passes with riders that are just common rider character name. And I think you can technically trace that back to Nadashiko. I can't think of an earlier one. But also Nadashiko was a movie writer, and it really becomes more prevalent starting with X-Aid, where you've got common rider Poppy and ride player Nico, and then build with evil, which I'm counting as just being evil because you took a letter off it's it's the same thing and then zio kind of takes it to this near ridiculous extreme with gates Waz, and tsukuyomi
0: it doesn't hurt that rather it doesn't help much that uh half the time or really about a third of the time uh sogo is referred to just as zio like when he's in civilian identity because one of the characters only calls him that
1: yeah so like it just feels really lazy. It's lazy.
0: Yeah, no it is. Like I
1: I don't know, you could call Jin like Common Rider Construct or something. Yeah. It's lazy. Pick a word. Pick just a random English word. These are eight year olds. They're not gonna care. It's gonna sound cool to them.
0: Exactly. And like Like look, you, I, you have
1: common rider birthday. That's a real thing that exists. Really? Uh, it is one of the late... It's like the big tank form of Common Rider birth.
0: Okay, okay. I didn't know that that was... That it had a name. That's amazing. But, uh, like, I just want to say I'm not really here for it either. Like, I get that they're probably running out of interesting things to call them. Or, in Jin and maybe Hirobi's case, depending on how things go, we can say that they were literally built or rebuilt or whatever... To be common Riders, so it's highlighting their dehumanization, or, or how they don't even properly view themselves as people. But even if that's the case, I don't know what everyone else's excuses are. Just find cool things to call them. Like, they have a design department that, where that's their whole job. Just do it. Heck, just call them, like, Construct and, like, common writer point one, Because, ooh, what's that mean? Like that yeah, sounds. That
1: would important. actually be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, because if if Horobi uh, is Common Rider point one, I I feel like that would that would be fun. That would I, be like oh just,
1: look, Build had a lot of Common Riders and most of them had names. And I mean, even if like Rogue and Mad Rogue are not that different, it it narratively makes a lot of sense given you know. Gentoku and Utsumi. Yeah. So, like, they I'm not gonna other. begrudge them that. Like, it's narratively the way that they've built off of each other, that makes sense. But, like, I don't know, you don't need three characters whose common Rider names are just their name.
0: Yeah, no, it's bad. It's, it's lazy. But anyway, uh, moving on to Jin himself.
1: Uh, the suit itself is pretty nice. Like, it does feel like an abomination of Flying Falcon. And I mean, I know it's got the decade colors, and we can all have a ha-ha about that, but structurally, it's got a very Mashin' Chaser vibe to it, with all of yeah. that really industrial metal and what looks like it's supposed to be concrete, even though it's definitely plastic. <sniffs> like, I just, I really dig on this Abomination Common Rider that it's got going on. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm really here for that. It looks really cool.
0: Oh, agreed. Especially because, okay, I'm in love with all the diamond plate detail. I don't know why, but it puts just such a smile on my face.
1: It's it's a thing that, again, is so specific, because, yeah. you know, that diamond plate metal is really only used in very specific circumstances. It's this very industrial metal.
0: And it's just And look, I'll be honest, like, I'm kind of ambivalent about the rest of the suit, because more than anything, I'd like to see more progrise keys get put in there so that we can see which bits are his base state if he has such a thing. But I I just wanted to know which bits are the key and which bits are Jin. But that said... I
1: feel like those bits of metal are what is Jin. Yeah, like... Like those bits of metal and concrete.
0: Yep, and his eyes. But I don't know. I just I want to see more because the way they did the pink was really washed out for me, and I just it it didn't feel as decade as I would have liked, if I'm honest. <laughs> but whatever, like I'm ambivalent. But it's not a bad suit. It's just not a great one either. Um, that said, I I adore without ceasing that despite how the driver is clearly a new toy made of you know really clean plastic, just like the versions you can buy at a at a preferred retailer for a reasonable price. The driver looks like it has been molded in such a way that it's supposed to look jury-rigged. Like, there's bits of scrap in it. One of the, the bits of it sort of resembles tape being stretched across it. And I just think that is really great. I love that driver.
1: It's, I really, I want us to get, like, a better look at it. Yes, I mean, maybe I'm just gonna have to wait to, like, physically look at the toy, but it's really neat.
0: Yeah, it just, it looks real, yeah. Um, and from there we have our final new suit of the night, uh, Common Rider Valkyrie's Lightning Hornet.
1: I think of the four AIMS suits thus far, this is my favorite. Oh, same. Which, again, surprised me because its key colors are yellow and blue, which I also notoriously hate. Uh, because Meteor Storm and Beast Hyper are just look terrible.
0: that they, uh, they do.
1: But having the majority of the suits still be like white and silver and black, and then the yellow being the primary form color and the blue being the accent is really nice, especially with the gun on the belt being that same blue and it's got the yellow key in it, like that really pulls the look together. The face still feels a little weird, but the suit itself is surprisingly solid, and I really love that rider kick.
0: The rider kick was flippin' sick. It's true, but yeah, I have to agree that the face plates are the weakest parts of the Ames designs. Because, look, I, I, I am very fond of this suit. This, I'm glad that Valkyrie gets all the best Ames suits, because I think this one and and the the cheetah one are much better than either the ones that Fua gets. The weird white blank skinned humagear face, it just there needs to be something going on with it to help it fit the rest of the suits. I like, I don't know, more color changing eyes, just, just some bits to like clip onto it. I don't something. Something. It's just it's so close to being a really good suit, but instead it's just, you know, it's, it's nice. Also, I just want to throw out that I think one of the reasons it might be working better for you instead of the, the blue and gold being usually not your thing is that instead of, like, a, a really bright kid's toy blue, it felt, to me at least, that they had a much darker blue than we usually have in, in like, uh, the, the Beast Hyper or Meteor Storm. And, and that the darker color would help create emphasis for all those yellow honeycomb hexes instead of trying to meet them or outshine them.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the blue is actually darker, but I think the way the suit is constructed, much of the blue ends up in shadow due to being small areas that are recessed from the yellow, mm. which makes it seem darker, which honestly does it a lot of favors because when the light hits it you get kind of a very clear picture of what the color and texture is yeah but you're not constantly seeing yellow up against blue that way
0: which boy that's that is very nice it is so then i think we're just on to our final thoughts about these episodes uh, sono why don't you why don't you start us off
1: All in all, these were two really sweet episodes that I think introduced a lot of new and interesting lore and plot information. And they were a little bit formulaic and a little heavy-handed in places, but nothing to a point that really detracted from the episodes. I think we're just kind of in that slow period that Yuya does at the beginning before the first major plot turn. Where we're kind of supposed to fall into a sense of security about, you know, how how this show functions. And, you know, then at Christmas, we're gonna have our lives ruined.
0: <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> and then Christmas comes along.
1: But for this being that slow period that's supposed to kind of lull us, we still get a lot of really good story and good action and, like, really interesting stories. So honestly, I think this is going pretty dang well.
0: Oh, yeah, I have to. I have to agree. Um, for, for my own por- part, while I will definitely not argue that, yeah, we're getting a little formulaic, I do have to give some love to the fact that both of these episodes are going back to one of the themes of particular interest to me, which is the kind of sociological world-building around the Huma-gear in these kind of like ripped from the headlines perspectives, which I don't know. That sort of thing is fascinating to me. And admittedly, it's not as fascinating as when it was happening in build, but, (laughs) but okay. Um, in, in episode five, right, we have our mangaka treating his assistants as if they were unfeeling tools and even explaining that he gets like some of his tools, just write his scripts for him, raising the question, which must appear in the minds of anyone who's worked at least in retail, what do bosses do? What are they for? Because, like, well, there are answers for those questions that will be varying degrees of satisfactory, the fact of the matter is that in many industries, all the ones I've ever worked in, if I'm honest, but that's, you know, a very small sample size, uh, the more you get paid, the less actual work you do, And after a certain point, people just kind of get paid to be who they are. By contrast, the people at the lower end of the spectrum do a lot of work, only to be treated as replaceable machine parts, despite the fact that without them, the work don't get done. Like, imagine any given McDonald's, where all the people working on the floor don't show up for whatever reason, and the owner decides, hey, we're still going to be open, and does all the work himself. That's Or herself. Themselves. That's a better way to put it. Like, sure, in this show, we see that the manager has learned his lesson, one hopes. But at the same time, there's nothing stopping him from making his assistants burn out like that again. And then this is followed by episode six, where we start looking at not only the laws which are built around the appearances of human gears but also sort of have to consider the wider ramifications of a Humagear voice actor who can do more than one part in ways that one would usually need two or more voice actors for, because in this world, there are clearly still people getting paid, which implies that people still need jobs. So while my hooray for the robot self cannot begrudge our first Humagear voice actor's choice to p- pursue her dream or, or purchase her purchaser's dream. It's kind of muddy. Um, the possibility exists that cost-conscious producers would hire a single HumaGear in place of an entire cast as as the realization of the overblown nightmare you hear about every few years when there's an advance in computer animation. You know, the the headlines like 3D models and computer animation will replace actors! And of of course, that's not the prime conflict of six, but it's an interesting level to me, which is, as I wrap up, just my way of saying, take your drink, folks. Aleph got on his super pinko soapbox in this completely apolitical show about automation freeing humanity to pursue its dreams. Thank you for, for allowing me to just kind of go off, because once I decided I was going to be big on the the automation side of this it's just everywhere in it. So do you have any any other final or final thoughts?
1: Um I'm excited to keep going. Yeah, same. I'm I'm still really into this show.
0: Yeah. I I was so afraid when they're like, yeah, we're going to talk be talking about corporations and artificial intelligence and I was like, mm, no. <laughs> I'm afraid and I'm so glad I didn't have to be.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I believe you said to me, or someone said to me, that we're either gonna really enjoy doing this show, or, like, five episodes in, we're gonna stop and just watch Kuga.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds like a thing we, I probably said, because I'm right there. That is, yes.
1: It was gonna be one or the other. There was no middle ground.
0: Look, especially after Zeo, because, like, Zeo was a lot of, like, okay, well, let's just, we can just push through
1: we can try it it may pull itself together and it never did i'm sorry
0: like there's just you can't do that two years in a row (laughs) i've done it it's not fun (laughs) anyway um so that's the end of this episode then so for the uncommon cast rx and the rest of the toll network i'm aleph
1: and i'm sona
0: and don't get kicked by a horse and die